Welcome to Stuff from the Science Lab from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey guys, and welcome to the podcast. This is Allison Lattermont, the science editor at HowStuffWorks.com. And this is Robert Lamb, science writer at HowStuffWorks.com. Uh, tell me something, Allison. Have you ever stared in the mirror and tried to watch yourself aging? Um, not really, because aging is kind of hard to detect. And, yeah. you know, apart from rooting around and seeing if there are any gray hairs or whatever. Yeah. I know there's that one. Have you? D- um, no, because it, it sounds kind of boring, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, but no, uh, but I mean, there's, there's like that YouTube video, the, the guy who like took a picture of himself, like, uh, regular increments and then, uh, like put them all together in like a, like a, sl- a slideshow, you know? And like, like that's an example where you could, you could actually watch yourself age a little, you know? Yeah. But, but, but not by just looking into the mirror. Right, right. It's hard to detect, but we know what's going on. I remember, um, going to an exhibit at the MoMA in New York City a while back mm-hmm. and I got this book and, uh, it was a photography exhibit and the photographer took a pictures uh, every year of these four sisters. And so flipping through the book, um, you could see the, these women aging, you know, just as you flipped. And it was so cool. And it was so interesting. Oh, just, wow. I really, I really dug that. But yeah, aging is definitely hard to, to notice. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you got a couple of gray hairs poking out overnight. Then how do you know people are actually aging? How do you, kn- you know you're actually aging? Let's see the proof of it. I don't see you aging right now, right? You look like you're getting a little older. <laughs> doing this podcast? It wasn't that. It makes it sound like this see, is a really hellacious podcast session. Ear hair sprouting out of those earphones. Yeah. Well, that just means I need a haircut. <laughs> but, but the point I'm trying to make here is that another area that is very difficult to observe. And one of the criticisms mm-hmm. often thrown at it. Yeah. Is, is how do you know there's evolution? Like, like we can see it. Yeah. Where, let's see some evolution. I don't, I don't believe in evolution. Put some on the table. <laughs> Dish out some evolution. Let's Give see. Give me a side evolution. Yeah. Get, put it in a bag. You can't do it, you know? Cause it's, uh, cause evolution occurs at increments over a very long period of time from generation to generation. Right. And if you consider that Darwin's origin of species hasn't even been in print a mere 151 years, which is, you know, kind of a drop in the bucket. Yeah. So, that's, that's nothing, uh, on an, on an evolutionary scale. Right. So consider, you know, how short of a time period we've been Looking, mm-hmm. and that's not to discount the fossil record because, of course, the fossil record does, in fact, provide us a, a good understanding of what's gone on in the past for organisms. Yeah, but one of the things with the with looking back at fossils is you have like definite frozen moments in time, you know, in these different forms. But but it's it's much harder to to see the movement, to see like the the the, the change from one form to the next, uh, you know. Yeah. So we thought we'd cover a couple of evolution in action studies today. Yeah. Yeah. These are examples of yeah. Evolution in action, and they're they're just great examples to really you know make make evolution come alive to, right. s- to a certain extent. And they're occurring today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's talk about the lizards. I feel like we always talk about lizards. Yeah, well, lizards are great. They uh, are pretty great. And uh, yeah, we have a couple of studies. The first one uh, is is really cool. This was a 2009 Penn State study. Yep. And uh, it dealt with these little uh, fence lizards. Uh, you know, kind of like these little dudes you see running around. You know, everywhere. Yeah, three um, inches. Yeah. And uh, they're uh, suffering from an invasion from the south, fire ants. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, poor little guys. Yeah, and, and it, they're, they're in an area where they've just over the, the several decades have suddenly had to deal with fire ants, and they've never had to deal with them before. 
Um, and so this is this is a hallmark of evolution. You know, you have a species, and suddenly the game has changed. You know, right? We some, have new food. We have new enemies. Right. We have conflict. Yeah, because the the food thing is key. Because the it's not what you think. The fire ants can eat the lizards. They yeah, can, I was surprised by that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you would think obviously the lizards are going to come out on top here, but they're not. They're but at not, least yeah. not the ones that are newly exposed to the fire ants. So let's get into the details of the study. Yeah. So what what they decided to do was uh, was to look at these. It's like not all the lizards are have encountered fire ants yet. Okay. Some have been dealing with them for as long as like sixty eight years. Though. Yeah. So they had four different groups, right? Yeah. And they were looking at uh, four different groups of lizards that had been exposed to fire ants in different yeah. increments. One so, group had never encountered fire ants, and then like one had encountered them for like twenty three years. Another had encountered them for somewhere in the neighborhood of like forty something years. And then at the, the the far extreme, there's the group that had been dealing with them for sixty eight years. They were sixty eight long yeah, years of fire ants. Veterans of the Great Lizard Fire Ant War, right there. So the researchers were trying to figure out, um, with time as a factor, how. Yeah, how they've adapted to this this new stimuli, you know, and which ones are you know, going to be better um, situated to deal with it. And apparently, like the main defense against fire ants is to is to basically move your butt, <laughs> because because um, in the in the group that had like never encountered them before, like they will just sit there apparently, and the fire ants will crawl over them, and the lizard's defense is like, oh, I'm just going to be real still still and shut my eyes. Yeah, and they took it. Yeah, and then they just get the Jesus stung lizard. out of them. Yeah. Whereas the the ones that are used to it, they'll know, hey, I need to move, and they'll or they flick them off. Yeah, they'll flick them off, or they'll leap away, you know, etc. Um, they have learned to deal with it. So they, yeah. So they, the researchers observed this behavior, mm-hmm. whether the the lizards could, you know, take it or get the heck out of there. But they also were interested in looking at the hind leg lengths of all the lizards. What did they find, Robert? Uh, well, they found that lizards living near fire ants. Are they're developing behaviors to increase their survival and, and evolving longer hind legs in response to the attacks from the fire ants? Okay. Yeah. And, and so that was that was their exposure. It was right. the exposure, the length of exposure, the correlated. Yeah. And I should also mention that I, I believe one of the details in the study was that they they didn't like kill a whole lot of lizards in the study. Like I think they were they were like saving the lizards before they could be stung to death. Oh, and, that's nice. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but so as cool as the study is, it's not quite speciation. No, it's more like these are the movements, though, that that can lead to it. But yeah, this is not these lizards aren't becoming a new breed of lizard, a new species of lizard, mm-hmm. uh, rather. Um, but let's talk about where speciation may be occurring. In fact, in White Sands, New Mexico. Yeah, this is uh, another lizard study. This is a 2010 University of Idaho study, and I actually uh, talked to one of the um, people uh, tied up in the research uh, for this uh, for this a story for Discovery News. Cool. Yeah, I like back in it. January. Yeah, um, and this one deals with uh, these brown lizards, traditionally brown lizards, uh, but that they but they live in an area called White Sands, New Mexico. Right. And why do you think it's called White Sands, New Mexico? Because there's white sand everywhere. It sounds kind of. And nice. they're a brown lizard, though. Yeah, so and what is a lizard? And what is a lizard? One of the lizards' traditional uh, defense mechanisms is camouflage. Yeah, camouflage. So the the but the of course these lizards have changed over time uh, over the course of say two to five thousand years right since they arrived there mm-hmm. a couple thousand years ago yeah so so they were they were exploring how they've uh, they've changed pigment during this time uh, they've they've become these like white lizards really that live in white sands yeah and uh, and anyway they made the the argument that that this is re- that one of the they, they were hit se- they've hit several of the road stops on the way to speciation um, and uh, 
and uh, you know they've, they've changed their color. That's a big one. But also they've started uh, uh, having a preference for light-colored lizards when it comes to breeding. Really? Yeah. So it's like they're, you know, it's sort of like imagine, uh, you know, it's like a, a, a line, you know, and, and one line is diverging slowly from the other. So mm-hmm. you know, have you know another ten thousand years? You know, you might have the the white the white lizard and the brown lizard are separate species entirely. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. But not as cool as the E. coli. Yeah. This this is a fantastic study, and you guys may have heard it. It uh, goes back to what we were talking about with the generations. You right. know, it's like human generations. Um, it's hard. It's hard to really, you know, we can't really watch it spread from generation to generation. There haven't been that many generations since Origin of Species, you know, etc. But if you can find a species that has really small generations, a short life cycle, yeah, short lived. It's like pushing the fast forward button right. on evolution. Right. Right. And uh, a lot of times, the the choice. Organisms might be Drosophila, your, your fruit flies, mm-hmm. or uh, or plain old bacteria. And in this case, in back in 1998, it was E. coli, a single E. coli bacterium that a Michigan State University biologist used, and he started 12 laboratory populations with it. Yeah, this is Professor uh, Richard Linsky. 20 years time, Linsky had 44,000 generations on his hands. So if we were studying humans, this would be a phenomenal amount of time. Yeah, we'd be talking something in the neighborhood of like 3 million years of human evolution. So Lenski observed the bacteria as they grew larger and faster in response to lab diets. Then what happened? Well, you uh, hit around the, uh, what, the 31,000th, 500th generation. Something special happened. Yeah, suddenly they, they're able to, uh, this one population of them are able to consume citrate. Which is this nutrient that they've they've been surrounded by the whole time as as part of their um, medium? Yeah, their medium. Um, it's kind of like like imagine if you were like it's, it's like the. the Are buff- you going to bring up the cats? Please no, don't no, bring was, up the cats. That was, in the that was one of my more way too complicated, uh, me, you know, metaphor overly elaborate metaphors. Robert but, has to find a way to work in cats yeah. into every podcast. No, it's just kind of like the buffet bar was there. Yes, and they were eating most of it, and then one day suddenly they were able to eat the seafood portion of the buffet. Good. Good yeah. for them. But in this case, it was the, the, the citrate. So suddenly you had citrate plus E. coli. Yeah. So you wound up with a population of mutated citrate-consuming bacteria. And as you can imagine, that was a pretty handy uh, ability to have. And so the population of that bacteria skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. And now they call these citrate plus E. coli. Yep. So here's also something very interesting about this experiment. You know, somebody's going to dismiss it as a one-time thing. Oh, it's a fluke or whatever it is. Well, Lenski had a solution for this. So the whole time, he and his team had been freezing samples every 500 generations. So he was able to do a a rewind. And uh, he was actually able to go back and replay some of the experiment and see if they could catch it again. I mean, this is so cool. Yeah, yeah. And... And uh, apparently they were like when they went back and they like replayed it, they were they found that like something was occurring in this in this one population at like the at the twenty thousandth or so generation, right? Like some small changes that were leading up to this ability to uh, metabolize citrate. Yeah, and they're still working to figure out exactly what. Okay, so that's the question. Yeah, you know what is the the mechanism? I mean, if they could pinpoint it just a little bit more, that mm-hmm. would be great. Yeah, just get down to the the, the fine changes that are occurring. It, it reminds me a lot. I think there was like a Twilight Zone where like like the humans were uh, observing the evolution of like a micro uh, biological. So it wasn't. It was more than microbiological. It's like a tiny little civilization, and mm-hmm. like they watched them grow. You know, develop like spaceships and stuff. And I think The Simpsons did a parody of it. 
So on a more sobering note, um, the ability of bacteria to evolve or uh, any organism to evolve has pretty important implications, as you guys know, um, you know, especially when you're talking about our 50 plus year war against harmful bacteria, uh, when you're talking about things like extensively drug resistant tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are other. You know, so that's that's definitely. Yeah. In the, in the same way that these uh, citrate plus uh, E. coli were suddenly able to to deal with something in their environment that, that uh, they hadn't you know been around for too terribly long. You know, we're having a. Uh, Having uh, some very harmful microbes out there that are, you know, figuring how to out how to deal with the situations that we're throwing at them. I will tell you, as a parent, it's sometimes terrifying to give your kid antibiotics. You know, I, I wonder, you know, is my kid going to evolve resistance to this? You know, I, I, it's it's just a little terrifying. And and then there's a there's a whole side with uh, insects and pesticides as well. You know, where insects developing a resistance to certain pesticides over time. We you know we throw out these uh, solutions and uh, we don't really realize that. That uh, nature is pretty good at evolving. It's pretty much all it does, you know. So, uh, given enough time, uh, you know, it's it's remarkable what people think, uh, you know, especially micro- microorganisms will be able to do. Like, I was reading something the other day, uh, researching some stuff about plastics, mm-hmm. and there are some uh, some predictions that, like, uh, you know, you know, like tens and thousands of years, like, you know, you'll you'll eventually have uh, microbes that can can really break down plastics in a way that we we can't we don't see today, right? You know, because it's a new material. But give them enough time, they'll figure it out. Yeah. In the meantime, maybe just bring your bags so you don't have to use plastic bags. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In fact, that's always always a good idea. So speaking of plastic bags, we got a plastic bag here full of uh, reader mail. Excellent. Yeah. Let me grab. We're not, they're not really readers. Well, some of them are readers, but. Listeners. Primarily listeners, I guess. Um, yeah, so we got one here from, uh, Alicia. Oh, Alicia. She was yeah. the one who wrote into Fair uh, to share her favorite bit of Cosmos. Yeah, yeah. She's one of, she's a fan of some of our, uh, um, more, um, cosmic, uh, entries in the podcast series here. And she says, Hey, Allison and Robert. This is a little something that I remembered after listening to your podcasts about the birth of stars and planets. Though this one, this is more relevant to the death of stars. I just wanted to share my favorite factoid ever from cosmology. It was on caps. <laughs> the quote plasma soup unquote that resulted from the Big Bang consisted of only very small particles like protons, electrons, etc. But there weren't any heavier elements that would have higher atomic numbers. But from what I can tell from my simplistic understanding of physics, when stars began to coalesce, the force of gravity pulling on the outside of the stars would cause immense amounts of pressure on the particles in the middle, causing the nuclear fusion reactions and creating heavier and heavier elements. Thus, large stars would be able to create heavier, uh, large, heavier elements closer to their centers. Then if a star dies and, be- and becomes a supernova, it sends its particles scattering far and wide throughout the galaxy to later clump them and become part of other stars, planets, and what have you. While I am normally not a romantic this literally means that we are all made of stardust so yeah that's that's awesome you know we're all we're all star stuff so that's that's kind of neat it kind of you know builds this whole like unity of the universe you know we are the universe and the universe is us so it's very deep, I can Robert. It. yeah thanks alicia and uh oh and then we have another one here from uh oh i thought it was from allison loudermilk at first that would probably be cheap if you're <laughs> writing in your own fan mail <laughs> Sending in any listener mail. <laughs> uh, this one's from uh, Natalie. Oh, Natalie wrote in about Pavlov, right? Oh, yeah, this is a long one. Here we go. Not as long as some of the. And maybe just read some of the highlighted parts. Okay. Uh, 
She says, first of all, I just want to say I'm a big fan of the show. I'm addicted to listening to the podcast just before bed or in the quiet moments of my free time. So we should really keep the yelling down. <laughs> we should. She might be trying to get to sleep. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, I'll have to keep that in mind. Uh, your topics are always very engaging and informative. Whenever I listen, I feel like I'm getting a brush up on concepts I missed while zoning out in high school science classes, which is great. That's pretty much uh, that's part of the whole mission here. Uh, she says, I just finished listening to your podcast, World Changing Science Experiments Part 2, and was very interested in the section on Pavlov and his experiments with dogs, but I had to send an email to let you know I side... No, oh, let you know a side of Pavlov that is generally unknown to most. I just graduated in May 2010 from CU Denver with a bachelor's degree in psychology, and during my history of psychology class, we discussed Pavlov's work in great detail. Uh, I was surprised and disturbed to find that Pavlov used children, orphans in fact, in the same manner as dogs in his experiments. I had never heard this. Yeah. And uh, once he discovered that he could condition any unconditioned response, he wanted to see if human was, humans would react in the same way. She goes on to say, much to my surprise, my professor showed a video of Pavlov working with both his children and his dogs, or both his dogs and these children. Despite this discovery, I'm still a fan of Pavlov's, as his work was pivotal in understanding learning and behavior in humans and other animals. Again, I love the show. And that's great, because that's, I mean, that's always my experience with finding out more about science and, and science experiments, is that it's always a little bit amazing and a little bit creepy. Depends <laughs> on which side you look at it, you know? Yeah, so share your amazing stories or creepy stories with us. Whether you're on Facebook, we're at uh, Stuff from the Science Lab, or Twitter, we're on Lab Stuff, or uh, send us an email at sciencestuff at howstuffworks.com. Yeah, let us know uh, what you're up to and check out those sites, and you'll be able to see what we're up to. All right, thanks for listening, guys. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. <laughs>